Good evening and welcome to the City Club of the Mahoning Valley Forum. I'm Tim Francisco, Professor of English and Director of the Center for Working Class Studies here at Youngstown State University. I'm also a member of the City Club of the Mahoning Valley Advisory Team. I'm honored to introduce and to welcome back to Youngstown and to the Museum of Labor and Industry, Stephen Greenhouse. Stephen is former New York Times reporter of some 30 years, 19 of which was spent on the workplace beat. He is author of his latest book, Is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. It is no secret that the American workforce has been changing for decades. A decline in manufacturing and rapidly advancing technology has shifted our economy. Soaring corporate profits and CEO compensation, coupled with corporate tax cuts and wage stagnation, has led to unprecedented income inequality. According to Mr. Greenhouse, these changes can be attributed to the decline of unions and worker power. In the 1950s, more than one-third of wage and salary workers belonged to unions. Today, that membership is a scant 10.5%. How did we get here? What can we learn from the successes of past worker-led movements? As our workforce continues to change, what does worker power look like today and in the future? All of these questions are explored in Stephen Greenhouse's book as he explores the evolution of the labor movement and as importantly, how workers can seize power in a changing economy. Mr. Greenhouse, in addition to his 30 years as a labor reporter, has served as a business and economics reporter, as well as a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He has been honored with the Society of Professional Journalists Deadline Club Award, a New York Press Club Award, a Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Reporting, and the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism for his last book, The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. That was Stephen's last visit to Youngstown. A New York native, Mr. Greenhouse majored in government and letters at Wesleyan University and obtained a master's degree from the Columbia Grad University Graduate School of Journalism. He is also a graduate of New York University School of Law. Please join me members and friends of the City Club, and welcoming to the stage, Mr. Stephen Greenhouse. Thank you for that nice introduction, Tim. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be invited to speak in Youngstown. I want to thank the City Club of the Mahoning Valley. I want to thank the YSU's uh, Center for Working Class Studies. I want to thank the Museum of, of Labor and Industry. Um, I feel I know Youngstown pretty well. Uh, my very first beat at the New York Times was covering the steel industry. Uh, this is years before I started covering labor officially for the New York Times, and I used to come to Youngstown a good bit then. When I was in law school, I spent a summer working in Youngstown with, with some of the folks here to try to fight to save steel mills, and I've long you know, been very interested in, in saving manufacturing uh, and blue-collar jobs in the U.S. And... Uh, I worked with Bob and, and with uh, Staunton, Staunton Lynn this summer I was here, and I called up Staunton yesterday to say I'd love to visit today, 
and, he, and his wife, Alice, said, sorry, we're too busy. It's Thornton's 90th birthday today. So I, I dedicate this speech to him. So friends often ask me, uh, Steve, why did you spend four years of your life writing this book? You know, once you retired from the New York Times four years ago, why didn't you just retire? So a big reason is that I felt that far too many Americans, especially young Americans, know far too little about unions and about worker power generally and what they've accomplished over American history, you know, what they've done for tens of millions of, of Americans and their families. And, and my sense is a lot of people think you know, the 40-hour work week was handed down by God. And I explain in my book, no, it wasn't handed down by God. It was won by decades of struggle by workers and their unions, and ditto with pensions and paid vacations and paid sick days and, and, and safe workplaces and, and good, good employer-sponsored health coverage. Um, in my book, I write about uh, you know, some of the most important episodes in labor history. Uh, you know, one was an uprising of 20,000 female garment workers in New York in 1909. That strike lasted two months in the dead of winter, and they were fighting not for a 40-hour work week. They were fighting to reduce the work week from 52 hours to from 60 from 56 hours. I write about the the, uh, the Flint sit-down strike in 1936-37. To my mind, the most important labor victory in the 20th century. Uh, they, you know, that was such a significant victory because. After year, years of unsuccessfully trying to unionize General Motors, they finally got GM to recognize a union. And at the time, GM was by far the nation's largest corp corporation. And once that 800-pound gorilla finally agreed to a union, that really uh, triggered a wave of unionization across the United States. I write a lot about the Midwest in my book. And you know, I write about you know, the United Order Workers and the Treaty of Detroit uh, and Walter Ruther and how that famous famous contract reached in the 1950s with G GM. It was after the war. GM was eager to expand, uh, but it wanted years of labor peace. And to get labor peace, it agreed to huge raises for the workers, a 20 percent raise after inflation, and the best health coverage and pensions in the nation for unionized workers. And that became a model for hundreds of other unions and, and companies. And I argue in my book that that contract, you know, you know from the UAW, and GM and the steelworkers soon, soon copied that, that contract with the U.S. Steel. That became the model that really built the middle class in America. In the book, I explain that the only time in the past century when income inequality really declined substantially was when labor unions were at their strongest in that era, from the 1940s to the 1970s. The, the income going to the one, top 1% 1 fell from 21% down to 8%. Now, with unions getting weaker, uh, you know, uh, the top 1% have gone from 8% to 21% again. The other day, I was speaking to a class at Rutgers University, a labor studies class, and a student there said, I don't know if I'd ever want to join a union. I don't think I'd ever want to pay union dues. Why pay union dues? And I said to him, you know, let's, let's unpack that for a second. Um, if you, you know, according to various academic studies, union members earn 13.6% more than the typical comparable non-union worker after factoring in, uh, you know, age and education. And union dues are only like 1%, one and a quarter percent of, of overall pay. Uh, for African-American workers, uh, union members make on average 16.4% more than uh, non-union African-American workers. Uh, union members... 
83% of union members generally have pensions on the job. Fewer than 50% of non-union workers have, uh, you know, employer-sponsored retirement benefits. You know, union members pay far less towards their health coverage generally than, than non-union members do. Usually non-union members pay about twice as much for, in their health care premiums, um, and that means they pay an extra $4,000 a year compared to, to union members. You know, we talk about the uh, gender pay gap. You know, for unionized women, they make 94 cents on the dollar compared to unionized men. Still too much, six cents, six cents. But for non-union women, they make only 78 cents on the dollar compared to uh, non-union men. And when I was talking to this Rutgers student, I said, and, and I haven't even gotten to the most important benefit of belonging to a union, you can only be fired for just cause. And that if you're not in a union, you could be, you're an at-will employee, you could be fired because you're going to work one morning and your boss is pissed off about, you know, you're not smiling enough that morning. So, you know, that, that Rutgers student said, that's interesting, maybe I was wrong about not wanting to join the union. Um, so the second reason I wrote this book was I wanted to sound an alarm about another problem. Uh, and to my mind, you know, the power of workers in the United States has fallen to its lowest level probably since World War II, I'm sorry to say, maybe since the Great Depression. You know, part of this, you know, as Tim said, is that the uh, percentage of workers in unions has declined very significantly from a peak of 35% in 1954 to just 10.5% now, uh, and just one in 16 in the private sector. Overall, the peak for unionization was 1979. There were 21 million workers in unions. Now there are just 13.7 uh, million. That's a decline of, of about 30%. And, and I argue in the book that uh, this decline in unions and worker power helps explain the decades of wage stagnation, helps explain why income inequality has soared to its highest level since the 1920s, and that this decline in worker power also explains why our system is so skewed that, you know, that corporations and, the, and billionaires have such undue sway over our policy, our, our politics and our policymaking. One example of this is that, you know, we have a president who, who told us he was a great friend of workers. We have a president who named as his labor secretary a man uh, who was Corporate America's top gun, top lawyer in fighting against increased worker protections. Uh, you know, Gene Scalia was the Chamber of, God, uh, Chamber of Commerce's main guy in fighting against any new worker protections that the Labor Department or, or others came up with. A third reason I wrote this book is to sound an alarm about another huge problem that I, I fear that far too many Americans don't understand, don't realize, and that is that you know far too often American workers don't have basic protections and rights that are basically universal in other industrial nations. The U.S. is the only industrial nation where every worker is not guaranteed paid parental leave, paid maternity leave. The only other nations in the world that don't guarantee paid, paid maternity leave are Suriname, Papua New Guinea, and a few tiny Pacific Island states. Generally in the European Union, women are guaranteed at least six-month paid paid maternity leave. The U.S. is the only industrial nation where every worker isn't guaranteed paid vacation. Uh, in the 28 nations of the European Union, every worker is guaranteed at least four weeks paid vacation. In Germany, five weeks. In France, six weeks. The U.S. and South Korea are the only industrial nations that don't guarantee every worker paid sick days. Uh, according to BLS statistics, workers in the bottom quartile by income 
50% of them receive, don't receive paid sick days. 50% of them don't receive paid vacation. Uh, I, I write about a licensed practical nurse named Patricia Hughes, who came down with severe pneumonia while caring for a paraplegic in Thornton, Colorado. Coughing, vomiting, and with 103 fever, Hughes called her manager to say she needed to miss work for two days. She told me, I told my boss I was so weak that there was no way I could care for and move the patient. He responded, if you don't come in tomorrow, don't bother ever coming back. Too sick to work the next day, Hughes was fired, and as a result of losing that job, she was evicted from her apartment. So my book, I, I, I use a phrase that a lot of people have paid attention to. I say, America suffers from anti-worker exceptionalism, that in many, many ways... American workers are treated far worse than workers in other industrial nations. Yes, comparatively, our wages are good, not as good as they used to be, but... but um, and there's an, as all of you know, there's another way where American workers lack a very basic right. The U.S. is the only industrial nation where every worker is not guaranteed health coverage. So that means if you work in a factory in Ohio, or Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, with 1,000 workers... You know, we're the only industrial nation where, if that factory closes, all 1,000 workers and their families might lose health coverage. Uh, you know, we're, we're you know, anti-worker exceptionalism works in other ways. Workers in the United States work far more hours than workers in other industrial nations. Typically, American workers work about six full-time weeks, more than the average French worker, average British worker. American workers work about 10 full-time weeks, about 400 hours more each year than the typical German worker. Another way of seeing how, how weak unions and workers are in the United States, so in France, 98% of workers are covered by collective bargaining agreements. In Belgium, 96%. In, in Italy, 80%. In Germany, 56%. In Britain, about 30%. In the U.S., only 11% of workers are covered by, by union contracts. So professors often debate, you know, the various reasons American workers are in many ways worse off than workers in other industrial nations. And, and you know, part of the reason is that unions are so much weaker in the U.S. And you know, to my mind, by far the main reason that worker, that worker power and unions are weaker in the U.S. than in other industrial nations is that American corporations are so tough and aggressive in fighting against unions. And I have this line that, again, that has been widely picked up, saying you know, um, that... Uh, in no other industrial nation do corporations fight so hard to keep out, indeed, quash unions. And um, you know, you know, a professor in, at Cornell, Kate Bronfenbrenner, has done a study showing that you know, like 60% of um, employers facing unionization drives threaten to close operations if workers unionize. About 45, 50% threaten to reduce wages and benefits if workers unionize, and that 34% fire rank-and-file workers who are leading unionization drives. Unfortunately, many politicians and corporate, corporate politicians have also declared war on labor unions. We saw that uh, with Scott Walker's uh, you know, assault on unions in 2011 in Wisconsin. We saw that here in Ohio, also in 2011, when John Kasich and the Republican legislature passed a law that went even further than, than Scott Walker's to eviscerate, to gut, to cripple labor unions. You know, there was a backlash, you know, as you know, 
far better than I, you know, uh, referendum that overturned that, I think, 62-38%. Two years ago, Iowa passed a very similar law that basically killed public sector unions in Iowa. That didn't get much attention. And then there's been these anti-union fee laws, which I think are misnamed right-to-work laws, you know, passed in West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And this is all an effort funded by billionaires and companies to weaken labor because they don't like labor because it, it uh, challenges them. It, it, it means they have, they have less freedom. So everyone knows about Scott Walker's war against unions in Wisconsin, but there's one thing many people don't understand. Union membership has fallen faster in Wisconsin over the past decade than in any other state. It's fallen by 44% by 177,000 workers. You might want to know that Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 22,000 votes. Michigan passed a right-to-work law. It passed some laws to make it harder for child care workers and, and home care workers to unionize. In Michigan, the union membership has dropped by 19 percent, or 146,000. In the past decade, Donald Trump won Michigan by 10,700 votes. Pennsylvania has lost 182,000 union members, largely because of the decline in manufacturing. Uh, and Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes. I often wonder whether the results of the 2016 election would have been different had union membership in these states remained the way they had been a decade ago. Um, there's a 2008 study by some professors at Boston University in Columbia and, and Brookings that found that um, when unions vote an anti-union fee bill, a right-to-work bill, the uh, turnout by the Democratic base drops 3.5% compared with states that don't have such laws. Uh, Donald Trump won Michigan by 0.2% compared to the 3.5%. Uh, Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 0.8% compared to the 3.5%. Turning a little more to politics. In my book, I write that the Democrats have not done enough in recent years to win over blue-collar workers and union members. I quote the pollster Stanley Greenberg, who wrote, the Democrats don't have a white working-class problem. They have a working-class problem, which progressives have been reluctant to address honestly or boldly. The fact is that Democrats have lost support with all working-class voters across the electorate. I write, if there's one lesson that Democrats should take from 2016, it's that they will have a hard time winning the presidency without making a robust appeal to blue-collar Americans of all races, whether it's a message on income inequality, trade, Wall Street's excesses, improving health coverage, or lifting workers' wages. I add, it's important to fight for African Americans, Hispanics, the poor, and immigrants, but it's important at the same time to fight visibly for struggling blue-collar whites so that they feel that someone is paying attention to them too, so that they don't feel forgotten or left behind, so that they feel someone is trying to lift them. But even if Democrats speak to blue-collar whites on economic issues, the question remains, I'm sorry to say, will those concerns be trumped by the racial resentment that helped lift Donald Trump to the presidency. In light of today's anti-worker trends, the good news is many, many workers are frustrated and want to do something about it. And, and one thing, uh, you know, one way they're looking for hope is to unions. And, and a Gallup poll uh, that came out in August found that 64% of Americans say they approve of unions. That's about the highest level in the past 50 years. I think a lot of Americans are pissed off that corporate profits are at records, Wall Street's at records, 
and their wages are basically flat. And they see all these BMW commercials and, and, and Mercedes-Benz commercials and you know, people vacationing on, on, on the Viking lines. And, and like, I can't afford that. And they're, just, they're upset. And they, they look to unions as a possible way to lift themselves. And, and another encouraging news for unions is that you know, an MIT study last year found that uh, one in two non-union workers say they would vote to join a union tomorrow if they could. That's up from 32% in the 1990s. So that's, that's a, a nice, strong increase. And remember, there's this crazy disconnect where one in two workers say they'd vote to join a union if they can, but in the private sector, only one in 16 belong to unions. And, and I argue the main reason for that is corporate opposition to, uh, to unions. I should point out, many of you are probably saying, you know, one of the big reasons, of course, that unions have declined in the United States was the decline of manufacturing of steel and autos, and, and you know, people in Youngstown know that better than people anywhere in the country. In 1979, when manufacturing was at its peak, there were 21.5 million manufacturing workers. That fell by 40% in subsequent years, down to 12 million. And, and you know, manufacturing was very much the core of organized labor. Uh, another vote of confidence uh, we've seen in unions is the wave of unionization among white-collar workers. You know, a lot of adjunct professors, grad students. There might be a grad student strike at Harvard next week, actually. Um, you know, a lot of nurses across the country are unionizing. And in my industry, there's been a huge amount of unionization in Slate and Salon and Vice and Vox and Huffington Post. The New York Times and the Washington Post were long unionized, but the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune were probably the most vehemently anti-union papers in the country and they've unionized in the past two years. So is the New Yorker magazine and the New Republic. So, you know, you know, again, people feel that their wages aren't keeping up. They want a voice on the job, and they're unionizing, and they're speaking out. Now, as many of you know better than I, workers are flexing their muscles through strikes uh, more than they have in any time in more than three decades, since 1986. You know, I turned in the original manuscript of my book on, February 19, on a Monday morning, February 19, 2018, when things were fairly quiet for labor except for the fight for 15. And, and it was kind of a depressing time. And then three days later, February 22nd, 2018, there was this volcanic explosion in West Virginia. You know, tens of thousands of red-shirted uh, teachers, you know, crowded into Charleston. Like, wow, what is this? Workers have awakened again. And, you know, and that really caused a chain reaction you know, to Oklahoma, to Kentucky, to Arizona, to Los Angeles, most recently in Chicago. And we saw you know, Marriott strikes, hotel strikes in eight cities. We saw the stop and shop strike in New England uh, this past spring, where a lot of candidates joined the picket lines. Um, you know, I spoke to some union, you know, union leaders up in, up in New England. They said, we were shocked that we got so much public support. You know, everyone honored our picket lines, and they shopped at you know, at competing supermarkets. Of course, teachers were going to get a lot of public support, but who thought grocery clerks would get so much? And most recently uh, is the GM strike. And I think and one of the interesting things in the strikes, and for instance, in the teacher strike, is, you know, they were very mindful that, you know, sometimes uh, conservatives, business folks, the Wall Street Journal editorial page were very quick to criticize unions as narrow self-interest, that they're only thinking of themselves. And in the teacher strikes, I think they very much tried to show we're not only fighting for an extra 0.5% for us, we're fighting for more funding for schools, we're fighting for more nurses and more librarians and more, more guidance counselors and, and, and smaller class size. And we're tired of using these books that are 30 years old. We want 
new books. And I think the teacher strikes really created a new spark in labor, and I think created a new image in labor. You know, I have a, a quote in my book from some education writer who doesn't normally cover unions, and she said that you know, teacher strikes have changed the image of labor. It used to be that you know, you know, strikes were by blue-collar workers, that too many that a lot of people said were just being greedy and out for themselves, and the teachers are giving a new image to labor, that they're, they're younger and they're women, they're, they're very much out to help other people, help the kids as well. And it's interesting, the GM strike, um, the first day of the GM strike, UAW's chief negotiator, Terry Dittus, said, this strike is not just for us. This strike is for, you know, the whole country. And he said, you know, you Americans, you're also concerned about factories going overseas. Well, so are we, and we're fighting against that. We're angry that the Lordstown plant closed. Uh, GM says it closed Lordstown because... Demand for the Chevy Cruze was declining, but GM kept its plant open in Mexico that makes the Chevy Cruze. Terry Dittus also said, you, you know, Americans, you're also concerned about the quality of jobs, the future of jobs for your kids and your grandkids. We, the UAW, are also worried about that because the great General Motors, you know, the iconic American corporation, 7% of its workers are temps who make only $15 an hour. And to me, it's like mind-blowing that great General Motors has, you know, factory workers making, you know, hardly more than many fast food workers make. It just, it's just crazy. So um, we often hear, you know, business lobbyists and conservatives complain about big labor, big labor, big labor. And that's a phrase I hate. Maybe you could use that phrase in the 50s and 60s when labor was truly strong, when on Sunday mornings they'd turn on Meet the Press and you'd find George Meany, the, you know, the president of the AFL-CIO. Now labor's not nearly as strong or big as before. So in researching my book, I looked up some numbers and I see that in the 2015-16 uh, campaign, uh, corporations donated $3.4 billion, more than one-six times as much, more than 16 times as much as unions gave, $213 million. And then in lobbying, this is according to the Center for Responsive Politics, which is a, a respected nonpartisan group. In lobbying in Washington, corporations spend uh, just under $3 billion a year, which is more than 66 times as much as unions would spend just $48 million a year. So when I talk about things being skewed very much in favor of corporations and the rich and against workers, you know, those I think are good examples. I think that helps explain why when corporate profits and Wall Street, uh, and Wall Street were already at record levels, uh, Congress and Donald Trump rushed to pass to enact a trillion-dollar tax cut for corporations while they're just sitting on their hands and doing nothing to raise the, the federal minimum wage, which hasn't been increased in more than a decade, which is the longest time the minimum wage hasn't been increased since it was first enacted in 1938 under, under FDR. So um, something, you know, I argue in my book that something is badly broken in the U.S., and, and I often say the one area I agree, the one thing I agree with Donald Trump on is that the system is rigged. It's rigged against workers and in favor of corporations. But unfortunately, uh, Donald Trump has rigged it even more against workers and, and, and even more in favor of corporations. I know when Donald Trump was campaigning in Ohio and Indiana and Wisconsin, he was saying, I'm the champion of, 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 of workers. Uh, I'm going to bring back all the jobs. No factories are going to close when I'm president. But, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say, I'm sorry to say that with him as president, 
he has taken many anti-worker actions. He's rolled back uh, a plan to extend uh, overtime pay to millions more workers. Uh, that will hurt a lot of workers, mean, you know, mean thousands of dollars losses, losses to them. He, you know, the Trump administration has scrapped a very important rule that would require Wall Street firms to act in the best interest of workers and retirees in handling the 401ks. You know, when Donald Trump ran for president, he said, I'm going to stick it to Wall Street. I'm going to really help workers. Well, this is a really important example where he really kissed up to Wall Street and, and stuck it to workers. And I think it's going to cost lots of workers thousands, even ten thousands of dollars. He's reduced the number of ocean inspectors. He's reduced safety, safety rules for oil and gas rig workers. He scrapped an Obama rule that would make it much harder to award big federal contracts to companies that violate overtime laws and sex discrimination laws. Um, so, you know, workers have big problems, I'm sorry to say. And, and, you know, in my book, I describe the rise of unions and how they help workers, you know, the, the, the Flint sit-down strike and the, you know, and, and the great contracts won by the UAW and the steel workers. Um, but then the book can get depressing. I described the decline of labor and Scott Walker's war against unions and, and how Ronald Reagan uh, fired 11,300 air traffic controllers, and that really set back unions very seriously, and how globalization has hurt workers and, and, and Wall Street's increased power over American capitalism has really gotten corporate executives to be much, much tougher towards unions. But in, you know, so I, in the last seven chapters of my book, I really explain ways to strengthen work and power. Uh, uh, and I look at models and strategies to do that. And I look at the fight for 15, which started small, but then, you know, and, and, and I really explain how it grew into this mass movement that has helped millions and millions of workers. Uh, I profile, um, I have a whole chapter about what I think is one of the very best unions in the United States, the Culinary Union in Las Vegas, which represents hotel housekeepers and dishwashers and assistant cooks. And that union has, while most of the unions have been losing members, that union has gone from 18,000 members in, in the late 1980s to uh, 60,000 members now. It's a, it's a union that's probably 70% female, probably 70% workers of color, uh, a lot of immigrants. And I profile um, a, a hotel housekeeper. She makes $19.51 an hour working at the MGM Grand. She were under the contract. She works a 40-hour week. So that's $780 a month. That's um, around $40,000 $40, a year. I visit her apartment. She's raised three kids by herself. You know, she has a three-bedroom apartment. She has a you know, much bigger TV than I have. She has a beautiful leather couch. She, you know, she raises her kids. She doesn't, need, she doesn't need Medicaid. She doesn't need food stamps. In comparison, the typical non-union hotel housekeeper in the United States makes $11 an hour compared to the $19.50. Probably works 30 hours a week, not, a, not guaranteed 40 hours. 330, make, maybe makes $330 a week. That's about $17,000 a year. Try living, you know, with three, try living by yourself on $17,000 a year, no less raising three kids on $17,000 a year. And, and, and at a time when we've seen Wisconsin... Pennsylvania, Michigan, flip from blue to red. We won't discuss Ohio. Um, you know, the culinary union has played a pivotal role in flipping Nevada from red to blue. And, and you know, I interviewed a lot of political experts in Nevada, and they say that union, you know, by mobilizing its members through phone calls and knocking on doors and getting people to vote early, they are the number one factor in, in moving Nevada's politics from, from red to blue. And I, and I hold it out as a very 
good model that other unions can learn from. And there are union victories closer to home, I should note. You know, here in Ohio, uh, when First Energy Solutions uh, filed for bankruptcy reorganization lately, recently it sought to basically scrap its pension plan and replace it with much stingier 401k plans. Uh, and that would have, you know, screwed 1,400 workers. It was their unions, the you know, utility workers union and the uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers that went to bat for them. They sued them and they reached a settlement with the company. So the company finally agreed not to, you know, to, to leave the pension plans untouched and not to move to much worse 401ks. I saw a newspaper article where the union's attorney, Joyce Goldstein, said, this is a remarkable victory for workers and unions. The agreement reached means that the workers do not lose a penny in their pensions or their wages or any other benefits. Um, how many more minutes do I have, sir? Okay, okay, okay. Um, so, um, you, know, you know, people often ask me, should uh, workers at Google and Facebook unionize? And I say, you know, I have friends whose sons and daughters have gone to work for those places, you know, right out of college, and they're making $100,000, $125,000 a year. So I say, I'm not, you know, it's up to them, but they seem to be doing okay. But, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, 20,000 workers at Google walked out one day because they were so unhappy about how badly the company was mishandling and, and hiding and burying you know, the sexual harassment cases. So to me, it was really interesting that even workers at what is often considered, considered the nation's most prestigious high-tech company even saw the benefits of, of collective action. One thing that really gets me is I've often heard corporate executives and business lobbyists say, we don't need unions anymore. Uh, you know, American workers have it good. Maybe we needed unions back in the 1930s when things stank, stunk for workers. Uh, but now, you know, if workers have a problem, don't worry, you know, our human resources Human Relations Department will take care of it. One of my favorite quotes on labor comes from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that quote is a terrific response to what these corporate executives say. Dr. King said, the labor movement was the principal force that transformed misery and despair into hope and progress. Out of its bold struggles, economic and social reform gave birth to unemployment insurance, old age pensions, government relief for the, for the destitute, and above all, new wage levels that meant not mere survival, but a tolerable life. The captains of industry did not lead this transformation. They resisted it until they were overcome. So I'm going to stop there. I thank you very much. I'll answer questions. Thank you. We've been listening to Stephen Greenhouse former New York Times reporter and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. We're about to begin our audience Q&A. We welcome questions from anyone and everyone, city club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet to city at City Club MV, and our staff will try to work it into the program. For those in attendance, please feel free to line up at the microphone with your question. We ask that it be in the form of a question, not a statement. Be brief and, of course, be civil. First question, please. As someone said, as someone said it's a Q&A. You ask the question, we give the answer. You don't give the answer. <laughs> so, Mr. Greenhouse, with 
the current sort of style of unions that there is, these big national organizations which are run by sort of a bureaucratic um, central head that has a general contract for the whole union, do you think that that format of union is going to be able to exist in this um, modern economy, or do you think that unions are going to have to change pretty rapidly? I, I don't agree that that model really exists. I mean, yes, there are large unions, and some of them are too bureaucratic, but generally they don't have nationwide contracts. They have individual local contracts. But what, what we've seen, for instance, with the Red for Red teacher strikes is, you know, that, they were very bottom-up. You know, the, in West Virginia, the teachers felt that, you know, the union, you know, the unions weren't even allowed to bargain collectively. They had to, like, beg the legislature to give them a few pennies more a year in, in, in their contract. And so we're seeing this more bottom-up. I think the GM strike was very bottom-up, too. People were unhappy about the closing of Lordstown. They're unhappy that you know, GM had this two-tier wage system. They're unhappy that you know, many workers had, senior workers had wage freezes for year and year. And I think that was, in many ways, bottom-up. And I think you know, unions generally have become less top-down. You know, some are still, of course, too top-down, but I think there's been more movement. And in my book, I explain that, you know, unions have unfortunately ignored, you know, you know some labor groups like, like farm workers. And I write about a terrific uh, non-union uh, farm workers group in Florida, the Coalition of Mockley Workers, that has done wonders improving, uh, you know, lives and wages and working conditions for 35,000 farm workers in, in Florida by launching nationwide boycotts against Taco Bell and McDonald's. So there are, you know, I think there's a lot of, lot, lot of bottom-up stuff going on right now. Okay. You know, Donald Trump and the Republicans play on xenophobia and anti-immigrant fear, saying the immigrants are taking our job. You know, I've worked working-class jobs my whole life. I've been in manufacturing. I've been construction. I've done masonry. It's always been something I've done. Even with college degrees, that's what I did in the summers, and basically it's what I do now. And what I found and discovered as a worker is the biggest problem, I, I think, is insourcing these temp agencies. You can't even go to a factory these days and get a you know job, they tell you, go to the agency, which is code for, you know, in part in my French, you're going to get screwed, you know, and something has to be done to fight these the staffing organizations and these staffing agencies and neoliberalism as a whole. How do we go about that? So, I mean, I, I agree with you, sir. Um, you know, it's very convenient you know, for demagogues to say, you know, all the workers' problems come from the inflow of immigrants. And on one hand, you know, the academic studies show, for instance, in construction, you know, that, you know, when a lot of immigrants come into construction, the Caucasian workers who are in, in construction, they get promoted to be their supervisors. They often end up, end up better off, and they're, they're not really being replaced. And, and you're totally right, and I agree that, you know, something, you know, sometime, I remember Shortly after Trump became president, I did some tweets about continued wage stagnation. And all these people said, oh, that's Obama's fault. And I'd say, Obama doesn't have control over wages. Donald Trump doesn't have control over wages. Corporations have control over wages. And they hold down wages by, th by some of the things you pointed to, by using more temps, by contracting out, by declaring that workers are independent contractors rather than regular workers, as we're seeing with Uber and Lyft drivers. And... 
you know, it's very, you know, corporations are infinitely clever in finding strategies to, you know, hold down labor costs. And that's one of the big problems unions have faced. And, and when they, you know, Uber and Lyft, are, you know, perhaps the best example, to me, it's like very clear that Uber and Lyft drivers should be considered workers and not independent employees rather than independent contractors because, you know, they, they have very, very little freedom. The only freedom they have is when they're going to work. You know, they, they follow the rules Uber and Lyft set. Uber and Lyft, you know, set their pay. I, I write about an Uber driver in Los Angeles, John Billington, who was making a good living at first when he was at Uber, but, you know, from one day to the next, Uber changed its rates in Los Angeles from 250 a mile to a dollar a mile. And if he was an independent contractor, he wouldn't have let that happen. You know, so he was, if he was, yeah, so, um, so it's really hard to figure out, you know, it's, you know, when you're considering an independent contractor, it's hard to unionize. When you're a temp, it's hard to unionize. So unions are really struggling with this. You know, the, you know, the two most hopeful things I've seen lately, so in New York, the Machinist Union, the Taxi Workers Alliance, you know, were really fed up with the way Uber and Lyft drivers are being treated and how little they're making. So the Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York City did a study that found that 96% of the 60,000, 70,000 Uber and Lyft drivers make less than the minimum wage. And they said, you know, and a lot of them are working 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. You know, it was dangerous for, you know, for pedestrians. Um, so the Taxi and Limousine Commission passed a, uh, made a big recommendation that the New York City Council enacted saying that Uber and Lyft drivers should be paid a minimum of $17.22 an hour after their gasoline expenses, insurance expenses, and car maintenance expenses. So that's a big deal. And, and you know, now in Los Angeles, they're talking about trying to follow that model. Another model in Seattle, uh, you know, domestic workers, you know, you know housekeepers, nannies, Babies, you know, they're often treated very badly. So Seattle passed a law setting up something called the Domestic uh, Domestic Workers Standards Board, where 13 people, you know, um, representatives of, of domestic workers, you know, some employers and government are going to set standards for the domestic workers, you know, about how much they should be paid, how much time off should they have, should they get overtime, should they get... So I, I think government, you know, unions and worker organizations are pushing government to step in when it's very hard to unionize. And that's why there's all this talk now about sectoral bargaining as well. Hi, Mr. Greenhouse. Um, one of the things that I have noticed lately is there's different types of organizations that are unionizing. Recently, we saw the Ohio Environmental Collaborative and Policy Matters Ohio become unionized. These are organizations that are historically organizers and that type of work. Uh, what can you say or what, what type of... Um, advice do you have about different types of organizations that are organizing? You know, someone might say, and, and I have heard when discussing this, that unions only belong in certain type of organizations like factories. What do you say about that? I, you know, I, I think, you know, so 100 years ago, a lot of the talk in the nation was about industrial democracy, which is a phrase that's hardly uttered anymore, where, you know, that meant that workers should have a strong voice in you know, not just on working conditions, but in shaping the policy of their corporations. Um, the whole idea of workers shaping the policy of corporations, you know, we, say good, we said goodbye to that a long time ago, but I think it's still a major, major, major problem that at far too many companies, you know, workers have very little say in day-to-day in -day affairs and in, in, in how long, you know, they're in their work schedule and in, in their pace of work uh, you know, what their vacation should be. And, you know, I think at any type of work organization, if people feel they 
need a voice at work, then yes, let them vote for representation, i.e. a union. I do think, though, that in a highly profitable corporation where workers are really not beginning to get their fair share of the profits, there's a better argument for unionization than in a you know, starving nonprofit where even if you unionize, the, the nonprofit might not have much money to, to give raises. But, you know, but I still think there could be a strong argument for unionizing a nonprofit if the workers feel that you know, they're being treated badly, they feel there's sexual discrimination, they think uh, a union you know, representing all of them will help give them more power and more fair, fairness vis-a-vis -vis management. Hello. I am one of the General Motors workers from Lordstown. Excuse me, sorry. And um, I'm very much in favor of the unions. My question is outsourcing. And do you think that's becoming the new American wave to outsource? So thank you for the question. And I, I did, I was in Lordstown about five, six months ago. I interviewed Dave Smith. I interviewed a lot of your co-workers and I'm sorry you've been through the ringer and then some. I don't, can't begin to imagine what all of you have been through. You know, unfortunately, outsourcing has been going on a long time in the United States. Uh, you know, go, you know um, I say in my book that you know, unions really started going downhill in the 1980s. And, and a big reason was you know, globalization. You know, for the first time, we felt a lot of you know, faced a lot of imports from Toyota and Honda and, 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 and Volkswagen. And then American companies said, hey, why don't we start, you know, building cars overseas and refrigerators overseas and, and telephones overseas. So that's been going on since the 80s. And, and also in the 80s was, you know, Reagan broke the air traffic controllers, and that's when companies got much tougher towards unions generally. So, you know, outsourcing is a major problem. And, and you know, the American way is for corporations to maximize profits, unfortunately. And I think, you know, I think one of the problems workers and unions face in the United States is like in the 1950s and 60s, you know, companies, corporate America cooperated much more with, with unions, and I think treated workers much better. And sometimes I have this theory that, uh, you know, during World War II, you know, the banker's son was in the same trench as the, as the, as the, steelworker's son or the, 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 the domestic worker's son. And, and there was some solidarity so that, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, and, and, and corporations and unions worked hand in hand in the 19, during the war to, you know, defeat the, to defeat the Nazis. I think so in the 50s and 60s, there was much, much more cooperation. And, and in the 80s, it all changed where, you know, there's globalization and much more outsourcing. And, you know, once you let that, you know, genie out of the bottle, it's hard to get outsourcing back in. And, you know, there's been this you know, huge debate about how can we limit trade, whether it's with Mexico, with China. And uh, you know, a lot of businesses want to preserve their right. You know, consumers say, well, I could get my, my you know, toys would be much cheaper for my kids if they're made in China than, than if they're made in Ohio. And, and even in auto now, you, you've seen the stories saying in Mexico, uh, they pay $2.80 an hour. Um, you know, to order workers and, and a senior order worker here would make $31 an hour. A second-tier person might make 18 21 25 an hour. So it's, it's really hard. And I think, you know, in you know, Germany, in Germany, workers have much more say in the economy. The unions are much stronger. The workers elect representatives to corporate boards. And we've seen much less outsourcing in Germany. 
you know, most of the manufacturing remains in Germany. In Germany, corporations spend much, invest much more training workers, making sure workers are as skilled and productive as possible. And the U.S., we don't see that much anymore. And, and, and you know, that's why I think it's important to give workers more of a voice. I like Elizabeth Warren's idea to let workers elect 40 percent of the member of corporate boards because maybe that would discourage outsourcing. But I don't, you know, I wish I had a magic answer. And, and it pissed me off immensely when the President of the United States tweeted that it's Dave Smith's fault. Dave Smith is the president of the local in Lordstown who fought very hard to keep the plan open, right? Dave Green, Dave Green, Dave Green. Sorry, 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 Dave Green. And, like, it's insane for the President of the United States to blame the union president when it was the decision of GM to close the plant. Just Steve, I have a question um, about workplace, which is the beat that you cover. And I wonder now when we're in a gig economy, when so many of our students will be working three or four different jobs for three or four different entities, right? Does that absence of a centralized workplace and identification with a workplace affect our attitudes towards unions and organizing? That's a good question, Professor. Uh, the Socratic method. Um, I, I, I think so. Why do I say that? And, and so I think when you, know, when you know, when you think you're going to be at your job for 20 years, you have a lot invested in it. And like you say, I'm going to stay around, and I better fight to make it better because I'm going to be here a long time. But, excuse me, but if you have a here today, gone tomorrow job, and you're juggling three jobs, and like, well, if I don't like this, I'll move across the street, or I'll go to this app rather than that app, I think people don't feel as eager to stick the next out. Having said that, you know, but with the internet, it's much easier to get in touch and in ways mobilize people. I mean, one of the amazing, amazing things in the Red Fred teacher strikes, and I explained this in my book, I, I interviewed the two young people who got the ball rolling for the West Virginia teacher strike, and the two young people got the ball rolling for the Arizona teacher strike. You know, a 23-year-old Noah Carvelis, who was a music teacher two years out of the University of Illinois, he founded the website, the Red Fred website, that went from like one, you know, from zero to like 40,000 people in two days. So, you know, the web can really be effective for mobilizing people. But you know, to the end of my chapter on the teacher strike, I quote this young man, Noah Carvelis. Um, and he says, Facebook is great for mobilizing people, but if you want to maintain a movement, you need an institution, and that means you need unions. Thank you. Sir. Um, thank you, sir, for your presentation, and welcome to Youngstown. Um, by the way, I just want to make a comment that I know Stockton Lynn because he was a lawyer for us when the GF in Youngstown here closed. So I know who you're talking about. Thank you very much. I just wanted to uh, ask... If you're fortunate enough to be receiving a pension benefit, okay, you're retired, and your company goes, I've heard many things, and your company goes under, who guarantees that? Is it guaranteed? Is a portion of that? Does, does the PPGC guarantee any of that, or how does that work? Uh, yes. The, the, the Federal Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation sort of guarantees it, but the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is running out of money, and there's a big fight right now in Washington about whether to save it. And the Democrats, you know, generally want to, you know, want to provide whatever money is needed to guarantee union, you know, pensions of retirees at 100 percent. Republicans aren't as eager to cough up all this money to make unions happy. 
because you know so they're maybe only willing to come up with enough money to fund like 70 or 80 percent of the pensions and that's that's being fought out right now i see so as we speak right now and my company was like going there right now what what kind of a guarantee would i have as far as a percentage i think some, I think some companies you know that have enough money you know, you know, some companies haven't had to turn to the, P, you know, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation because their pensions are amply funded. It's the ones that don't have ample funding that are in trouble, and especially the multi-employer pension funds where the big, big problems are right now. So, you know, are you getting your regular pension just from your company, or is, is it already from the It's from the PBGC? company right, right now. It's from the company, but so then it's really difficult to say. Yeah. Unless I know the financial stability of my company. Uh, or, or if its pension. If, it, if its pension plan is, you know, 110% funded, then you're probably in good shape. If it's only 80% funded, then you might have a problem. Okay, because I've heard so many different things, and people have said, oh, if, you know, if your company goes under, you're not guaranteed anything, or my dad that, that, got... That might I'll, be true. I'll, I'll, I, mean, I mean, you'll be guaranteed You'll be guaranteed something in theory under the PBGC, and how much exactly might be worked out. Okay, so it's... Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. And And... I'm not a trillion percent expert on the PBGC, so so fact check every fact check everything I say. Sir. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Great presentation. Welcome to Youngstown. Uh, my question is not so much along the line of with unions, but something parallel to that, and it's in relation to worker cooperatives as kind of a, a similar response. I think you're seeing, particularly with a younger generation, there's a great interest in this particular model, and it's reflected in the politics of, you know, the democratic socialist-related stuff. There's an, there was a steel mill about an hour south of here, Weirton Steel, which when it was winding down operations uh, in the early 1980s, decided to sell uh, two workers, and they formed a, co a cooperative, and it was able to exist for about 20 more years under that model in which that's where my family worked, which allowed my family to build generational wealth to allow me to go to school here at Youngstown State. So I just want to get your comments on um, maybe worker cooperatives as a response in relation to a similar end that the union approach is trying to take. Thank you for that good question. So uh, I'm a big fan of cooperatives, and people, you know, for going back over a century in American history, have talked about the importance of cooperatives, that they're a great way to do things, yet there are very few cooperatives. So there must be some many problems uh, that we don't fully understand. You know, why is it that cooperatives are so successful in the Basque country, the Madrigal in Spain, and so you know, they still have hardly gotten off the ground here? I'm not sure. Um, you know, to run a worker cooperative, uh, you need managers, you know, and, and, and I think cooperatives often have a hard time finding really good managers, and sometimes the managers say, we've got to be competitive and compete with regular you know, privately owned companies, and there'll be big fights between the cooperatives and, and the managers. I've seen that happen, and, and then the cooperatives fall apart. Um, you know, uh, at, you know, someone who was here before is trying to form a cooperative, and I said there's this terrific guy at the New School of Social Research in New York, Trevor Schultz, a professor from Germany who's doing terrific stuff and trying to set up, you know, Internet cooperatives, platform cooperatives, you know, which I think is a really good idea because it doesn't cost as much capital to form a, a cooperative on the internet as it does to form you know, a, a bricks and mortar cooperative. But you know, one of the big problems worker cooperatives face is that you're often competing against these big established capitalist corporations, which have a lot of money for advertising, which have a lot of capital for investment. And worker cooperatives often have a problem getting, getting capital. So like, I'm all for worker cooperatives, but it's, it's hard. And then you know, there's the... Uh, Worker-owned food cooperative in Madison, Wisconsin, 
that just unionized. Um, and that's creating tensions in, in, in Brooklyn, the Park Slope Food Cooperative, this famous lefty food cooperative. There's a unionization movement there. That's not worker-owned. That's you know, consumer-owned. But like real tensions when a cooperative unionizes. So. We have probably time for one more question. That's you. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how valid this question is, but uh, do you feel as though, I guess, us younger generation um, m- may have an effect on the blue-collar work and the unionization uh, purely because uh, of the rise of entrepreneurship and the rise of entrepreneurship and uh, how that has an effect on people leaving those kinds of jobs and uh, the government saying we don't need these kind of jobs. So you know, one of the things that surprises me is, you know, I've often thought that your generation is much more individualistic, entrepreneurial than, than you know, my, my generation. But you look at... You know, you look at, you know, the, the, the Gallup poll statistics saying it's your generation, age 18 to 34, that is most enthusiastic, most supportive of unions. Uh, 67% of your generation approves of unions, you know, and you wouldn't think that if it's such an individualistic. And then, again, you look at all these graduate students and adjunct professors. This, and, and, and I was interviewing some high-tech workers today at a very well-known company who are trying to unionize. And... And, and I said to them exactly what you asked, you know, aren't you supposed to be intri- individualistic, entrepreneurial? And they say, yes, 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 but we're treated not very well. And, and this is engineers. And, and they said, not everyone is an engineer making $140,000. There are, there are uh, content moderators who are making $30,000, $40,000 a year. And it's unfair that, you know, you know when, we, when we see who gets paid what, often the guys get paid 20 30% more than the women. And they say... Yes, we're individualistic. Yes, in theory, we're entrepreneurial. But unfairness is unfairness, and 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 uh, being mistreated is being mistreated. And we need a way to deal with that. And even at tech companies, they say the best way to do that is through you know is through collective action, often often through a union. Thank you. Tonight at the City Club of the Mahoning Valley, we've been listening to a forum with Stephen Greenhouse former New York Times reporter and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. The City Club of the Mahoning Valley is presented by the Bank of America, the Nordson Corporation Foundation, the Raymond John Wien Foundation, the Youngstown Foundation, and the Arnett Family Fund, a component fund of the Community Foundation of the Mahoning Valley. Additional support is provided by Youngstown State University and 88.5 WYSUFM. This brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Greenhouse, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To be one of these members or to find out about upcoming forums, please get in touch with Chris Tennant or look us up on the web at City Club Mahoning Valley. Thank you, Mr. Greenhouse. This concludes tonight's forum. I'm I'm very sorry there aren't books for me to sign. Sorry.